Thanks for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. You can learn more about us by visiting our website, www.covenant-pca.com. And again, take your Bibles, this time to our psalm for this evening, Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Again, God's inerrant, infallible word. Listen as he speaks to us. Follow along in his wonderful word. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. <coughs> Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for this wonderful psalm, for the way it's been used in many lives over the course of, of the world. Thank you for giving it to your church. Thank you for giving it to us to use both in our corporate worship, in our private worship, in our family worship. Father, we we read it and we realize how wonderful your word is. It indeed is as honey, sweet to our very taste. We thank you and ask you to illumine our minds now over these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever find yourself grumbling? I can answer that. That's the reason the scriptures tell us that we're uh, not to grumble. Uh, we just uh, read from First Thessalonians, a passage that uh, speaks to that, doesn't it? We're to, to rather give thanks. We're to uh, rejoice. Uh, Paul to the Philippians, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Why? Because our tendency is to grumble. Um, there's a, a little, for those of our covenant children who've grown up on, uh, on Steve Green's Hide Them in Your Hearts. Uh, you know, there's that wonderful little uh, set to, to music, keep your, keep your lips from evil, uh, keep your tongue from speaking lies. I won't try to sing it. But it's a wonderful reminder as our children, through each of them, we would, you know, we would plug on, uh, plug in the, 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 the VHS is actually what we have. I'm sure they're available in something fancier now. But uh, keep those lips from speaking lies. Keep your tongue from evil. Why? Because the tendency is that. How about, uh, do you ever find yourself uh, making plans for everything except worship? You know, we 
make big plans for, for, for vacations. We make big plans for, for, uh, for ball games. But, you know, when it comes to planning to worship God, sometimes we just don't put as much time into that. This psalm is a wonderful antidote to both of those things. The recurring, make a joyful noise, serve with gladness, come into his presence with singing, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name, help us think about the grumbling part. There's just not much room left there. Paul said that in everything we're to give thanks. In every circumstance, give thanks. I don't know about you, but that's, that's tough. But we're called to do it by God himself. And for his people, with that seed of regeneration and the constant presence of the Holy Spirit, it's surely possible. The only thing that keeps us from giving thanks is sin. How about preparing for worship? This psalm is really about worship. Now listen to what Matthew Henry says. This psalm, Psalm 100, is a strong invitation to worship God. That's what it is, an invitation to worship God. He goes on to say, let's get it clear. God calls us to worship him, not that God needs us or anything we have or can do, but it is his will that we should serve the Lord. He doesn't call us to worship because we deserve it. He calls us to worship because we need it. I think that's, that's a good point the great old Puritan commentator makes. I heard a couple of the brothers speaking in the hall. I wasn't eavesdropping, just couldn't help hearing uh, and comment concerning uh, Matthew Henry as I understood it. If I understood it wrongly, I, this would be a good encouragement for them to, to get off whatever other track they were on and on to Matthew Henry. But I see Mr. Center smiling, so I think I'm on the right track here. If you don't own a set of Matthew Henry, I won't say shame on you, but I will say get one and then use it. It's remarkable, the, 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 the wealth, even if you just get the abridged edition, but don't. The price is not that much different, so don't let that little bit of price cause you to get the abridged over the full set. They're not that lengthy. Uh, you will stumble across more edifying reading trying to get to what you're looking for in Matthew Henry than you will find in reading most other commentators, past or present. Matthew Henry. We sing this psalm, Psalm 100. We have it as the opening psalm of our Trinity hymnal. It's the arrangement the, is, is from the 1500s, William Keth. The music is from the 1500s, coming out of the Strasbourg context of, of, of John Calvin. And uh, there's a reason we sing it Often, and as I have studied it more recently and have always enjoyed singing it, always in the past 20 years, I should say. Didn't have any exposure to it until about that time. 
but from the time I started singing it, have enjoyed singing it, and studying it more closely, I'm convinced we don't sing it enough. Every Sunday might not be too much to sing Psalm 100. It's a marvelous psalm. I'm going to break it down into two primary truths, which seem to be the two points that uh, the, the better commentators all pick up on and, and seem to be natural to this text. And one is, we are to worship the covenant faithful one. We're to do it. That's the main point of this psalm. The subordinate point is, here's the reason you ought to do it. So we're to worship God, and then God turns around, and like the rational being that he is, he gives us reasons for it. And he does this in many places in the scripture. He'll tell us to do something. And remember, he's God. He could just give us a list of do's. And that should be enough. God said it, that settles it. But he often, more often than not, I think, gives us then reasonable or rationable, rational reasons to do it. He says, worship me. And then he tells us how or why we should. We're to worship the covenant faithful one. Verses 1, 2, and 4 speak to that. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's interesting and I think refreshing in that the ESV, which we use as pew Bibles and many of you are reading, uh, maintain the old authorized or King James uh, version of that first verse. Uh, the New American Standard, the New International uh, Version, uh, make it shout for joy, something to that effect, which certainly is not a bad translation. But the ESV translators chose to, to keep that more poetic, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence. Know that the Lord, he is God. It's he who made us. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Notice the simple statements that accent this call to worship. Make a joyful noise, as I said. Serve the Lord. We're commanded. Notice, by the way, um, all of these are, are in the imperative. And if you read this in the original Hebrew or you read it in the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation from, from 250 uh, B.C., uh, they get it just right. These are all imperatives. We are commanded to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We are commanded to serve the Lord with gladness. We are commanded to come into his presence. We are commanded to know that the Lord, he is God. This is one of the reasons, and, and notice, this is to all the earth. One of the reasons we believe that a person must believe the gospel in order to be saved is because they cannot keep these commands unless they have been regenerate and brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They cannot come into his presence. They cannot sing his praise. They cannot give proper thanksgiving. They cannot do something God commands them to do unless they've been regenerate, born from above, and having exercised saving faith into union with Christ. One of the reasons we believe the gospel, we are talking about this in the, in the hour before, and how important it is to maintain that position, that no, there is no other way, no second, third, fourth, fifth way of hope for anyone. It's through the gospel. And here, 
God commands that we worship him and we can only come into his presence to worship him, stand in his presence as a holy God through the mediator, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that mediates between God and man. Come into his presence, come into his courts. I want to use that word again. This is for Nobu primarily, but for others as well. That anthropocentric word. Nobu ran across this in my sermon notes and, and was curious about what it means. I used it this morning. I'm going to use it again tonight. You notice this, this is not very man-centered, is it? It's not anthropocentric. It's very God-centric, very God-centered. It's something we are not able to do on our own. Uh, you know, this is this passage, these commands, the way, the way that that God calls us into His presence is counter, not only countercultural in the general culture, but it's counter church culture. This is counter much of the church billboard culture that says come as you are this passage says come as I call you come as I command you come as I require of you we don't have the prerogative of coming as we are I know we all come to God as sinners now if that's all the billboards and the invitations to various churches mean that you need to come knowing that you're a wicked wretched miserable pathetic disabled sinner in need of a savior who can save you if that's what it means to come as you are then we would agree with them and the bible certainly commands us to come that way but if it is as i suspect once they throw in flip-flops t-shirts etc to to explain what it means to come as you are this passage is contra that God says, you're to come into my courts, you're to come into my, into my house, you're to come. And we don't even let people go into restaurants without shoes on. You ever thought about this? How lighthearted we take worship. We, in the Reformed tradition, at least, not all in the Reformed faith these days, but those who hold to the Reformed tradition, believing it is what the scriptures teach, find in a passage like this some of the, some of the basis for the Reformed principle of worship, the regulative principle of worship, that God regulates his worship. He's the one that tells us that we're to come. He then has the prerogative to tell us how we're to come. That it's not simply tradition, but it's principle. You understand the difference between principle and tradition. Principle means we believe the Bible teaches it. Tradition means it's something we've just done in the past. Now you can give up traditions because you believe the Bible teaches contrary to traditions. But you should never give up your principles. Because then you're sacrificing integrity. You're sacrificing the basis of all truth and that is God's word at that point. He would have us come. He gives us orders. We don't set the tone. We don't determine the terms. We are, to put it in common jargon, we're on his court. You know, we're playing. I, I, two weeks ago I saw 
uh, uh, the, the, the the LSU Alabama game and and LSU does this thing when you're playing on their home field down in Death Valley in Baton Rouge and you go in down there and when they start the fourth quarter the PA announcer says the sun is setting in the west it's the fourth quarter and you are in Death Valley now that is to remind the opposing team you're on our field we don't care who you are you're on our field and that's really what God's doing here he's setting the terms and the tone he's saying you come into my court. You come into my household. You come to me. We ought to be very concerned about what the house rules are. Now, we all have house rules. I have a dear friend in South Carolina. The house rule is you take your shoes off when you come in because, because his dear wife doesn't like cleaning footprints and shoe prints off of her nice hardwood floors. So you have a nice little basket when you go in. Now they, they'll fudge a little on that if it's a newcomer that seems to flinch at the idea of removing their shoes. But it's, uh, it's a cleanliness sort of thing for them and so you go and you take your shoes off. I kind of like that. We do that around our house. But we, it's not hard and firm. Some of you kids know that. Now if you get on my furniture with your shoes, then that's a different story. We all have house rules. God has his rules. And he says for us to come into his presence, come into his gates, come into his courts. So this is the answer to, to what we're to do. We're to worship him. We're to come there. Then he, he tells us what our attitude should be. Why do we worship him? He commanded us. What are we to do? To worship him. Now what's the attitude for worshiping him? That's the second point. Worship then is to be offered because he is the covenant faithful one. Matthew Henry says, know you what God is in himself and what he is to you. Do you notice what God said there? He says in verse 3, know that the Lord he is God. Henry goes on to say, knowledge is the mother of devotion. In other words, we can't rightly worship God unless we rightly know God. Calvin does this in the first book of his Institutes. He says we can't rightly know ourselves if we don't know God. Conversely, we can't know God unless we know ourselves. That's into that circular aspect. We can't really know, that, as we said this morning, we can't really appreciate sola gratia unless, um, unless we first come to grips with our depravity, our sinfulness. Then we go back to God and realize it has to be all of grace. So Henry says, if we're going to rightly be devoted to God and rightly worship God, we have to know God. And so he calls us to him. Henry goes on to say, blind sacrifices will never please a seeing God. In other words, we can't offer things just blindly. Okay, here's something I'll give. Here's a blind sacrifice. Give that to God. God sees, Henry says. You think you're going to sneak into worship ill-prepared and God not see that? 
Do you think you're going to sneak in and, and offer worship the way you like to do worship and God doesn't see that? No. That's why God puts the imperative on us to know Him. Know God so that we don't make those kind of mistakes. We do not worship if we depend on our variableness. Only when we believe in His veracity. I stole that. I'm going to give credit for it. William Charles Robinson. I just ran across this week. I've, I try to pick up his books as I find them uh, on the used market and I find them Sometimes too expensive, sometimes not at all. I found two of them this week for a buck each. Nice little hardback, 1935 Zondervan edition. The Certainties of the Gospel. William Charles Robinson was the last of the, the true Reformed theologians at Columbia Seminary. He joined the faculty as they were moving from Columbia, Columbia, South Carolina to Decatur, Georgia. Dr. Robbie, as he came to be known by his students, was a great, great man, great defender of the faith at, at Old Columbia Seminary. He, uh, he preached, in fact, the last sermon that Franklin D. Roosevelt ever heard. Roosevelt was at Warm Springs, Georgia, and Dr. Robbie preached the gospel. It was right at the close of the war. And, uh, uh, or at the close of his life, rather. And uh, he received, Dr. Robbie, a, a, a very heartwarming note from President Roosevelt thanking him for preaching the gospel so clearly. Dr. Robbie was a, an unashamed Calvinist, Reformed, covenantal theologian, a defender of the faith, considerable historical theologian. And he said this, Man's variableness takes the place of God's veracity. Too often, man's variableness takes the place of God's veracity. Now here's the point. When we come to worship God, in the things we do, they cannot be determined by our variableness. And the attitude we have cannot be determined by our variableness. What we do in worship and the attitude we have in worship have to be determined by God's veracity, His truthfulness, ultimately His truth. That's why the, the heavy call, the central call here to know that the Lord, He is God. It's He who made us and we're His. So as we consider that our proper worship is built on proper knowledge, God's veracity, Let's consider some of the things, some of the, some of the, some of the attitudes, some of the, the, the motives then and attitudes we have toward God in His worship that flow out of properly knowing God. We know that He is God. That's where it begins. We worship God properly when we start with this main point: He's God and we're not. It's the creator-creature distinction. We come to this place to worship Him knowing that He's God and we're not. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways beyond our searching out. He is infinite. We're finite. He is God. We need to know that up front. I think some of the casualness in worship these days is because we have failed to reckon with our God being a consuming fire. The apostle writing the book of Hebrews warns us we are not to ever lose sight of the fact that our God is a consuming fire. 
that speaks to his wrath and his justice. When we come to worship him, yes, we, we will, as, as, as we've already read, we're, we're to make a joyful noise in worship. And everyone in the world is called, the, the, the command is upon them to worship our God with joyful sounds. We're to serve him with gladness. By the way, I didn't mention this earlier, but I, I shouldn't finish without noting this. There, that serve the Lord with gladness is translated into the Greek, Septuagint, that's not inspired of God, but it is a, a faithful rendering. And, and they use the word doulos there. In other words, we're to be enslaved to God in this thing called worship. We're not free. Back to the regulative principle of worship. We're not free in this. We live according to his commands. And aren't you glad? Wouldn't life, think about this, wouldn't life be simpler if, if every church you went into lived according to the regulative principle of worship and you could just expect it to be the same everywhere you went? Don't you wish everybody considered themselves enslaved to God when it comes to this thing called worship? And we didn't hear so much about, well, I prefer this and I prefer that. You see, when you get this point, and I'm glad I came back and made this. This is a marvelous point because it's in the Bible, not because I'm making it. When, when we deal with this, that, you know, we're, we're slaves to God. And on this issue of worship, we're enslaved to God. We don't, we don't have, there's no room for, to use Dr. Robbie's, we're, we're, there's no room for variableness here. We have to look to his truth, his veracity for this. All right. We're to know God. What's built on? We worship God then because we know that he is God. We worship God because we know he's the creator. It is he who made us. Just simply put, hey, we're supposed to worship God because he created everything. And he made us. We're owing. We're, we're obliged to him. We're obligated to God. Yes, everyone is obligated to God. Doesn't matter if you're Richard Dawkins and deny God or not. You're still obligated to God. He made you. Not only makes us, but he also redeems. We are his people. When you get that terminology, we're his people, now you've moved from the realm of creation to recreation. From creation in the sense of being made in the image of God, now we're moving to that point where fallen man is redeemed. We are his people. That's covenant language. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. He made us. We are the sheep of his pasture. Remember those wonderful words in John 10 when the Lord Jesus Christ says that the sheep, my sheep, know my voice. They hear my voice and they follow me. The other sheep, which are goats, by the way, don't. They don't hear his voice. They don't follow him. There we, he speaks of redeeming. So we worship him because he's God, period. We worship him because he's the creator. We worship him because he's the redeemer. We worship him, you notice, in verse 5, we pick up with the rationale again. For the Lord is good. He's good. The covenant faithful one 
capital L-O-R-D, is good. That's the reason Paul can tell the Thessalonians, in every circumstance, give thanks. Because it doesn't matter what's happening. The surgery, the broken tooth, whatever's happening, it's good. It's for our good. He works together everything for his glory and for the good of his people. So we give thanks for it. You've heard the, you know, the, the joke that's often used. You know, somebody falls down a flight of sta- stairs and the Calvinist gets up and says, praise God, that's over. Well, there's some truth to that. It is God. We looked at God's providence this last Wednesday night. Everything and every person is disposed of by God, governed by God, provided by God. And when we as God's people who are the the, the wonderful, blessed recipients of his grace walk through a hard time here and there, it's good, it's for our good. I've used this before and just remind this morning someone asked me if I ever had the privilege of knowing Jim Boyce, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and I did have that, that privilege. And, and I remember hearing his last, I think his last utterances before the congregation at 10th Presbyterian Church. Not long before he died in 2000, he'd been diagnosed with an extremely aggressive liver cancer in advanced stage. And he came back uh, to the pulpit one last time just to say goodbye to his congregation of 30 some odd years. And he he said, you know, this is an opportunity for me to say that the sovereignty of God, which I've preached for 30 some odd years to you people, I believe. And I believe right now that he's doing what is very best for me by putting me through this in order to bring me to himself. So don't don't weep for me. Give God the glory for this because in his sovereign time, his sovereign purposes, for his sovereign good, he has afflicted me, and it's good for me. And it was not but a few days that he passed into the presence of his Lord. Now that's getting this, that God is good, no matter what. Now it may, be, it may, may seem trite, and it may, may be sh- superficial and shallow when you hear it out at Walmart. Somebody says, oh, God's good all the time. And you know that they've not stumped their toe lately. So you know this is not a faith statement. This is just a bumper sticker statement. But we need to get beyond the bumper sticker statement part of it and get to the faith part of it that God really is good. And he really is good all the time. And we have to see ourselves fit into a much larger, more complex scheme than our simple little lives often set a stage for. Some of you have been through those dark valleys. Some of you know that God's good even in the hour of death of a loved one even in the excruciating suffering of a loved one. Some of you know that. Some of us still have that to learn and to experience, but he's good, and that's one of the reasons we worship him is because he is good. We worship him finally, we're told here, because of his steadfast love that endures forever. We've studied that at some length. A year ago when I did a series through the the scriptures, different select scriptures looking at the steadfast love of God, It's just the faithfulness of God. It's not punctiliar. It doesn't just, well, he's faithful today and, 
well, I, I, I look forward to the next time he is because in between it's pretty miserable. No, it's not that way. It's a, it's a continuum. It's the steadfast love of God. It's always there the same. The variance, as Dr. Robbie said, is in us. We're the variable. We're the reason. We, we don't see his steadfast love because we don't look for it properly. And that's called sin. And that's why it behoo behooves us to repent and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ every day so that we better recognize that continuum, that steadfast love of God in all things and his faithfulness, which endures to all generations. There's not a generation God skips among his people. I didn't say there's not an individual God doesn't skip among his people. There's not a generation that he doesn't skip. He just simply doesn't. He's faithful. So this week, let's uh, better prepare to worship our God as we look forward to next week. Let's give him thanks in all circumstances, and we have a great opportunity this week. As we here in our nation, we, we, we enjoy this time of thanksgiving. We look back to those pilgrim Puritan fathers in many instances who, who offered thanks to their God for what he had brought them through in order to be here in, in this, this land on this continent. And we, we fail sometimes to, to realize uh, what's gone before us in our nation that allows us to enjoy what we enjoy and to have what we have. We have many reasons to give thanks, but none better than this that he's our creator, he's the redeemer, he is good, he's steadfast in his love toward us, and the overarching truth of that all is he's God, period. You see, when you say God, you're saying he's the creator. When you say God, he's saying he's a redeemer. When you say God of the biblical God, you're saying that he's good and he's faithful to all generations. So the psalmist here is just has just in a, in a brief way opened up what it means to say that he is God. We know the Lord is God and all these other things flow out. And so we have the proper attitude. We have the proper motives for worshiping our God in the proper way that he has prescribed for us as servants, slaves of God. So this week, let's put away the variableness and let's put on the veracity of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and ask that you do this for us, for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the name of Jesus, 163, let's stand and sing. Thanks again for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church. These sermons are provided for the edification of church members who wish to hear the sermons again and for those who are providentially hindered from attending our services. We believe the Bible teaches there is no substitute for faithful attendance to worship and membership in a Bible-believing evangelical church. If you are in the East Tennessee area, we encourage you to visit our church in Oak Ridge. If you reside elsewhere, we encourage you to seek out a good church in your area. For help in doing so, or if you have any other questions or comments, please contact us at cpcsermons 
at gmail.com. Again, you may learn more about us by visiting our website, www.covenant-pca.com. Blessings to you.